The Ideal House by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Two things are necessary in any neighborhood where we propose to spend a life a desert and some living water. There are many parts of the earth's face which offer the necessary combination of a certain wildness with a kindly variety. A great prospect is desirable, but the want may be otherwise supplied. Even greatness can be found on the small scale, for the mind and the eye measure differently. Bold rocks near hand are more inspiriting than distant Alps, and a thick fern upon a Surrey heath makes a fine forest for the imagination, and the dotted yew trees noble mountains. A Scottish moor with birches and firs grouped here and there upon a knoll, or one of those rocky seaside deserts of Provence overgrown with rosemary and thyme and smoking with aroma, are places where the mind is never weary. Forests, being more enclosed, are not at first sight so attractive, but they exercise a spell. They must, however, be diversified with either heath or rock and are hardly to be considered perfect without conifers. Even sandhills, with their intricate plan and their gulls and rabbits, will stand well for the necessary desert. The house must be within hail of either a little river or the sea. A great river is more fit for poetry than to adorn a neighborhood. Its sweep of waters increases the scale of the scenery and the distance of one notable object from another and a lively burn gives us, in the space of a few yards, a greater variety of promontory and islet, of cascade, shallow goyle, and boiling pool, with answerable changes both of song and color, than a navigable stream in many hundred miles. The fish, too, make a more considerable feature of the brookside, and the trout plumping in the shadow takes the ear. A stream should, besides, be narrow enough to cross, or the burn hard by a bridge, or we are at once shut out of Eden. The quantity of water need be of no concern, for the mind sets the scale and can enjoy a Niagara Fall of thirty inches. Let us approve the singer of Shallow rivers by whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. If the sea is to be our ornamental water, choose an open seaboard with a heavy beat of surf one much broken in outline, with small havens and dwarf headlands, if possible a few islets, and, as a first necessity, rocks reaching out into deep water. Such a rock on a calm day is a better station than the top of Tenerife or Chimborazo. In short, both for the desert and the water, the conjunction of many near and bold details is bold scenery for the imagination and keeps the mind alive. Given these two prime luxuries, the nature of the country where we are to live is, I had almost said, indifferent. After that, inside the garden, we can construct a country of our own. Several old trees, a considerable variety of level, several well-grown hedges to divide our garden into provinces, a good extent of old, well-set turf, and thickets of shrubs and evergreens to be cut into and cleared at the new owner's pleasure, are the qualities to be sought for in your chosen land. 
Nothing is more delightful than a succession of small lawns, opening one out of the other through tall hedges. These have all the charm of the old bowling green repeated, do not require the labor of many trimmers, and afford a series of changes. You must have much lawn against the early summer, so as to have a great field of daisies, the year's morning frost, as you must have a wood of lilacs to enjoy to the full the period of their blossoming. Hawthorne is another of the spring's ingredients, but it is even best to have a rough public lane at one side of your enclosure, which, at the right season, shall become an avenue of bloom and odor. The old flowers are the best, and should grow carelessly in corners. Indeed, the ideal fortune is to find an old garden, once very richly cared for, since sunk into neglect, and to tend, not repair, that neglect. It will thus have a smack of nature and wildness, which skillful dispositions cannot overtake. The gardener should be an idler, and have a gross partiality to the kitchen plots. An eager or toilful gardener misbecomes the garden landscape. A tasteful gardener will be ever meddling, will keep the borders raw, and take the bloom off nature. Close adjoining, if you are in the south, an olive yard, if in the north, a swarded apple orchard, reaching to the stream, completes your miniature domain. But this is perhaps best entered through a door and the high fruit wall, so that you close the door behind you on your sunny plots, your hedges, and evergreen jungle, when you go down to watch the apples falling in the pool. It is a golden maxim to cultivate the garden for the nose, and the eyes will take care of themselves. Nor must the ear be forgotten. Without birds, a garden is a prison yard. There is a garden near Marseilles on a steep hillside, walking by which, upon a sunny morning, your ear will suddenly be ravished with a burst of small and very cheerful singing, some score of cages being set out there to sun their occupants. This is a heavenly surprise to any passer-by, but the price paid to keep so many ardent and winged creatures from their liberty will make the luxury too dear for any thoughtful pleasure-lover. There is only one sort of bird that I can tolerate caged, though even then I think it hard, and that is what is called in France the bec d'argent. I once had two of these pygmies in captivity, and in the quiet higher house upon a silent street where I was then living, their song, which was not much louder than a bee's, but airily musical, kept me in a perpetual good humor. I put the cage upon my table when I worked, carried it with me when I went for meals, and kept it by my head at night. The first thing in the morning, these maestrini would pipe up. But these, even if you can pardon their imprisonment, are for the house. In the garden, the wild birds must plant a colony, a chorus of the lesser warblers that should be almost deafening, a blackbird in the lilacs, a nightingale down the lane so that you must stroll to hear it, and yet a little farther, treetops populous with rooks. Your house should not command much outlook. It should be set deep and green, though upon rising ground, or, if possible, crowning a knoll for the sake of drainage. Yet it must be open to the east, or you will miss the sunrise. Sunset, occurring so much later, you can go up a few steps and look the other way. A house of more than two stories is a mere barrack. Indeed, the ideal is of one story, raised upon cellars. 
If the rooms are large, the house may be small. A single room, lofty, spacious, and lightsome, is more palatial than a castle full of cabinets and cupboards. Yet size in a house, and some extent, and intricacy of corridor, is certainly delightful to the flesh. The reception room should be, if possible, a place of many recesses, which are petty retiring places for conference. But it must have one long wall with a divan, for a day spent upon a divan, among a world of cushions, is as full of diversion as to travel. The eating room, in the French mode, should be ad hoc, unfurnished, but with a buffet, the table, necessary chairs, one or two of Canaletto's etchings, and a tile fireplace for the winter. In neither of these public places should there be anything beyond a shelf or two of books. But the passages may be one library from end to end, and the stair, if there be one, lined with volumes in old leather, very brightly carpeted, and leading halfway up, and by way of landing, to a windowed recess with a fireplace. This window, almost alone in the house, should command a handsome prospect. Husband and wife must each possess a studio. On the woman's sanctuary, I hesitate to dwell, and turn to the man's. The walls are shelved waist-high for books, and the top thus forms a continuous table running round the wall. Above are prints, a large map of the neighborhood, a Corot and a Claude or two. The room is very spacious, and the five tables and two chairs are but as islands. One table is for actual work, one close by for references in use, one very large for manuscripts or proofs that wait their turn, one kept clear for an occasion, and the fifth is the map table, groaning under a collection of large-scale maps and charts. Of all books, these are the least wearisome to read, and the richest in matter. The course of roads and rivers, the contour lines and the forests and the maps, the reefs, soundings, anchors, sailing marks, and little pilot pictures in the charts, and in both the bead-roll of names, make them of all printed matter the most fit to stimulate and satisfy the fancy. The chair in which you write is very low and easy, and backed into a corner. At one elbow, the fire twinkles. Close at the other, if you are a little inhumane, your cage of silver bills are twittering into song. Joined along by a passage, you may reach the great, sunny, glass-roofed, and tiled gymnasium, at the far end of which, lined with bright marble, is your plunge and swimming bath, fitted with a capacious boiler. The whole loft of the house, from end to end, makes one undivided chamber. Here are set forth tables, on which to model imaginary or actual countries in putty or plaster, with tools and hardy pigments, a carpenter's bench, and a spared corner for photography, while at the far end a space is kept clear for playing soldiers. Two boxes contain the two armies of some five hundred horse and foot, two others the ammunition of each side and a fifth, the foot rules, and the three colors of chalk, with which you lay down, or, after a day's play, refresh the outlines of the country, red or white for the two kinds of road, according as they are suitable or not for the passage of ordnance, and blue for the course of the obstructing rivers. Here I foresee that you may pass much happy time. Against the good adversary, a game may well continue for a month, for with armies so considerable, three moves will occupy an hour, 
it will be found to set an excellent edge on this diversion if one of the players shall, every day or so, write a report of the operations in the character of army correspondent. I have left to the last the little room for winter evenings. This should be furnished in warm, positive colors, and sofas and floor thick with rich furs. The hearth, where you burn wood of aromatic quality on silver dogs, tiled round about with Bible pictures. The seats, deep and easy, a single titian in a gold frame, a white bust or so upon a bracket, a rack for the journals of the week, a table for the books of the year, and close in a corner the three shelves full of eternal books that never weary, Shakespeare, Moliere, Montaigne, Lamb, Stern, de Musset's comedies, the one volume open at Carmesine and the other at Fantasio, the Arabian Nights and Kindred Stories, in Weber's solemn volumes, Borrow's Bible in Spain, The Pilgrim's Progress, Guy Mannering and Rob Roy, Monte Cristo and the Vicomte de Bragelin, Immortal Boswell, Soul Among Biographers, Chaucer, Herrick, and The State Trials. The bedrooms are large, airy, with almost no furniture, floors of varnished wood, and at the bedhead, in case of insomnia, one shelf of books of a particular and dippable order, such as Pepys, the Paston Letters, Burt's Letters from the Highlands, or the Newgate Calendar. End of The Ideal House by Robert Louis Stevenson Read by Paul Fleischman